Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper, still in Block Island yeah. on, uh, I don't know, it could be Friday, August 4th, 2023. That's what it is. You know, we're totally off the schedule because we're we're on vacation. We're on holiday. We're on we holiday. can be off schedule. Yes. And we're here with Sadie. Sadie Abuhoff, our guest daughter. Say hello, Sadie. Sorry. Am I the guest or the guest daughter? Both. Both. So I'm not always the daughter, I'm just the guest daughter? <laughs> it's, it's confusing. <laughs> you're always the daughter. Anyway. And you're the guest. So, so it's a light group. It's a small, intimate gathering. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's been light all week. We've had guests, we've had run-ins. Yeah. You know. We run into people. We know six or seven people on Block We're sociable Island. people. Yeah. Yeah. Sadie had her uh, old friend, Carla, come visit. Mm-hmm. That was a good visit. That's right. We ran into Michael Bean yesterday. On the beach. Right. And Michael Bean spotted Sadie on the sand. It's unbelievable. So who knows? Uh, so well, I mean, the day is young. And uh, the husband of the vice president of the United States. The second gentleman. The second gentleman. Is that what that's called? Yes. Is, about, is uh, supposed to drop by. That's funny. He's the second gentleman, but there's no first gentleman. Yeah, because there's a first lady. Yeah, okay. There's the first man and the first lady. Yeah, that doesn't quite work usage-wise for me, but well, fine. that's the title that he's going with. Yeah. The other person that stopped by the island, which we did not see, is Dave Portnoy, who is a celebrity amongst many circles. I don't know that everyone knows him, but he's the owner of Barstool Sports. Well, the former, former owner of Barstool Sports, because they were just bought out by Penn Media. Um, but he did his famous pizza review on block island which is quite funny because pizza is not a thing that you find on block island it is a rare occurrence and it's not a delicacy known to many on the island well uh, there's an exception to that because the big but the biggest restaurant is aldo's and aldo's no but it's not they don't produce good pizza they just uh, produce pizza they produce serviceable pizza pizza. they produce pizza but anyway this fella is a businessman yeah well, but he it's, uh, uh, questionable. Yeah. He posts reviews of pizza right. on Twitter. He's been right? posting reviews of pizza for years, typically in New York City, Manhattan, sometimes the outer boroughs. But over the years, especially since the pandemic, he's done it while he's been traveling. And obviously, once he started it and they gathered a following, you know, anywhere he goes, people want them to review his pizza. So give me his name again. Dave Portnoy. Dave Portnoy. So he reviewed Block so Island it, Pizza. Is that the place it's called? Yes. But tell them about um, the uh, his review. Like what's called? It's just it's a it's a pizza review. But his tagline is "One bite, everyone knows the rules." So he picks up a piece of pizza. He determines the level of flop of the pizza, and he inspects the undercarriage. And comments on that, you know, is it burnt? Is it firm? Is it floppy? Etc. And then he says, one bite, everybody knows the rules. He takes a bite and he starts discussing, you know, the cheese, the sauce, the proportions, etc. The size of the slice, yada, yada. And then the funny part is that he keeps biting the pizza as he keeps taking bites as he's giving the review. So it's just kind of funny that he's like, his gimmick is that he reviews it after one bite. But he actually doesn't well, review it after one bite. Well, but this, but this can't help but remind me of QVC, which we've been tuning into on once in a while, in which they're selling 
but they constantly have uh, a focus on one food stuff after another. Could be one dessert. I'm thinking particularly two nights ago on lobster imported from Maine. And uh, the I mean, master... it's kind of a phenomenon. It's like a content piece, eating while, you know, There's a lot of eating on it. TV. There's a lot of eating on QVC. We've, we've also yeah. realized, you know, once we when we FaceTime with our favorite babies, they're often eating while discussing things with us as well. <laughs> Is that true? It's a good form of content. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they will do a review. Yeah. Because they, they may be eating, you know, Sadie's uh, banana bread. Yeah. And Sadie will want to know, is it good? tell us how it is. Yeah. Yeah, you say, is it good? And they go, oh, mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Was that, was that an imitation of That's pepper? pepper? That's my pepper Hazy impression. or hazel? No, I, no, they're usually more enthusiastic. Pepper's not that responsive. They're usually more enthusiastic about the baked goods. Really? Yeah. Okay. If you say so. enthusiastic. Yeah, so anyway, I mean, we've been back and forth about whether uh, Block Island is the same or it's changed. No, no, we must You think it's the same. I always think. uh, I think it's very much the same. But it it makes changes. But, you know, we're here for the natural setting. We do our biking, we do our swimming. The big news, I think we all believe, is my improved swimming. I think we're all excited about that. And just to what do you owe this improvement in swimming? It's not obvious that this would be this way. But I switched from a substandard pair of goggles, and we're swimming in open water here. A gift from your wife. Yeah. Uh, Okay. But uh, they're old. And uh, to something, uh, a product made by a company called Aquasphere, A-Q-U-A Sphere, uh, which was recommended by Wirecutter for the New York Times and, believe it or not, was carried by the Block Island Sports Shop, particularly the model called Cayenne, K-A-Y-E-N-N-E. And they were revelatory. You put these on, they were comfortable, they kept the water out, you could see. And the interesting thing is my swimming improved 100%. Maybe uh, more than that. Maybe more than that. Because you're just more relaxed when you can see a little bit, right? Even in these uh, dangerous waters. So, uh, Well, it is, it is dangerous waters because, uh, as I admitted to you, once you got the better goggles, I yeah. felt I had to tell you that I have been swimming over ginormous rays. Manta rays. Is that what I they're called? I don't know. I don't think Sting they're rays. manta rays. Stingrays? I think, I killer, killer rays? Yeah. Stingrays. They got the long tail. They're... Huge, like four feet. Really? Oh yeah, bigger oh, than yeah. A, bigger than a pizza. Bigger than a way bigger than a pizza. Well, fortunately, I haven't seen and, that yet. Uh, they hang out. I've seen them several times. Yeah. Um, and I did. Uh, you know, once or twice, I've heard. Uh, I've talked to other people who have seen them as well. Yeah, we talked to someone and yesterday. So, and, and I have had to kind of swim around and avoid a, a flopping tail. Oh really? I, mean, I don't know how dangerous it is, really. Yeah. They are. I, I understand they're very shy. They seem to be down on the bottom. We've been swimming at a time in the tide, the high tide, when the bottom's not too far away. Yeah. So um, so now you need to be prepared for that. You will see creatures All right. All right. now that you can see. Well, I'm But not... I will say, we saw some seals yesterday on yeah. the beach. Yeah. Yeah. But when I did my one-mile swim last week, there's, you know, very limited, smaller sea creatures in the Great Salt Pond. But crabs. I understand a lot of crabs in the Great Salt Nico Pond. Nico saw yeah. a lot of crabs. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are clams hiding somewhere. Well, when you're struggling for survival, you focus less on the, the yes. crabs on the bottom. Well, that's you know? that's that's the way I swim, so I see less. You know, mm-hmm. but yes. Sadie went on the one-mile swim. What's it called again? The Block Island something? The Great on? Salt Pond. The Great Salt Pond swim. swim. Yeah. Well, there was a little girl by the water at the... Great Salt Pond, 
and she, uh, her mother was urging her to go in, and she said, but I don't have my goggles. And her mom said, you don't want your goggles for this kind of swimming. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the Great Salt Pond is, as it sounds, a salt pond. But uh, that is a challenge, and every year Sadie does it, and it is a mile. Uh, and you've done it seven times? Seven times. Well, there you go. That's impressive. I have seven towels to show for it, and hopefully next year I'll get number eight, and I'll feel like it's a full set, maybe. Yeah, great. Really? Is that how many are in a set? I feel like eight is a good number. They're, okay. a big, they're big towels. I know that. Tamsin, what did you go, twice, Tamsin? Once or twice? Three times. Three times. That's impressive, too. Well, I didn't go because I didn't have my goggles then. Uh, so, and it's not like we're out of touch. They show movies on Block Island, or I should say movie, and of course, what movie would they be showing but Barbie? And uh, so Tamsin and Sadie saw Barbie the other night in a sold-out showing. Apparently, and, it's been selling out every night. Yeah. We've heard talk when we're around town, uh, people getting shut out. Now, the theater... Uh, barely, I don't think it holds a hundred people. I mean, maybe, maybe I would say closer to two hundred. I do think it looks, it's deceiving. Okay, maybe one hundred fifty, two hundred. Uh, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. Uh, so, but it is sold out every night. It's the only uh, and the only show in town. So there you have it. So, so what do you think? What do you think, Sadie? Uh, I thought it was good. I thought, you know, it got a lot of press. It got a lot of mixed, like, oh, it's not what you think it is, things like that. But first of all, you know, I think anyone going, 75% of what you want is the aesthetic, right? And I think it delivered on aesthetic. Okay. And nostalgia. And you thought it was funny enough? I thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some people thought it was heavy-handed with the feminist piece, but I thought it kind of rounded it out at the end and kind of brought it full circle to this kind of middle ground of, you know, at the beginning it's very feminist heavy and then, you know, the Kens take over with the patriarchy and then at the end Barbie realizes, oh, like, we can have a little bit of a middle ground. I don't need to be as mean to Ken as I am sometimes. Mean? <laughs> Not, I don't know if it's mean or dismissive. But, you know, because she makes the comment that every, in the earlier in the movie, it's every night is girls night. And then at the end of the movie, she realizes Ken just wants to be a part of her life. And she's like, oh, not every night needs to be girls night. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds like a happy ending. Yeah. And you, Tamsin, what do you think? I think it was fun. I thought it was a little bit long. And uh, I thought the um, fantasy scenes with the, um, what's her name, Ruth? Rhea. Rita? No, Rita? you're talking about Rhea Perlman. Yeah. But that's not what mom's talking about. The founder. That Rita is. Oh, oh, there's, oh, yeah. Oh, the pain. Okay. Okay, yeah. The um, the founder character. I thought I thought those were uh, overwrought, overdone, too long. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it was uh, you know, basically a fun summer movie. Although it did bother me. Uh, it did bother me when uh, that at the beginning... Um, the uh, the humans there's it's the humans versus the Barbie world right yeah. to some extent the humans are the human girls teenage girls etc are very dismissive of uh, the Barbie aesthetic right but by the end of it it's they seem to have bought in mm -hmm. to the Barbie aesthetic so that kind of bothered me like a perfect world 
does have to be more Barbie. I don't know. So on the one hand, they're talking a big game about uh, that's not the way to go, and then they end up sliding into that aesthetic anyway. Yeah, none of them are really happy until their hair looks a little better and their uh, clothes are pinker and per- perkier. So, oh. okay. um, I think that's a spin on it. I mean, I think there's more to that piece because I think they get there. They realize, first of all, that the Barbie world is different than the real world. So it doesn't line up as much as the Barbies think that it does. Right. Yeah. And that's why the girls don't like Barbies because the Barbies are very idealistic and the girls are like, no, that's not the real world. But then I think once they learn the true intention of the Barbies, that's why they like them a little bit more. So yeah. they, but and then they adopt their aesthetic. What mom's saying. Well, it's really I didn't see the movie. The, it, yeah. yeah, no kidding. It's really just the one girl. Well, but she's a stand-in for. I mm-hmm. I, I feel that uh, you know, again, she and her mother. Um, are there and they're going through unhappiness and they don't find happiness till the end of the movie, you know, having achieved some barbiness. So not sure that really. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the logic of the Barbie world and the real world and those connections was a little bit thin. It didn't really make sense. Right. Okay. And the whole thing with Will Ferrell and the, uh, yeah, that, the Will Ferrell The all-male board. I mean, I understand yeah. they were trying to make a point, but it just didn't really go anywhere. It was weirdly... It was a little over the top. Really? Will Ferrell over the top? Really? No, I like Will Ferrell. Well, more than I, I like do. him a lot. Okay. It was just weird because they were in the real world, but then all of a sudden you go into Mattel, and everyone's wearing the same exact outfit, and they have this kind of cartoonish office set up, and it's like, this is the real world, except this is kind of... And obviously it's Mattel, but it's kind of a weird, not real world part of real world. But and but the whole subplot doesn't seem to go anywhere. They don't seem yeah. to be involved at all in the end. Uh, but it, I got to admit, when they go into the real world and it's in, you know, Santa Monica, Venice, yeah. <laughs> you know, and on the um, the walkway, you know, the... the whatever they call it, uh, the beach uh, like ba- They're basically on PCH. That we've been on very many yeah. times. It, it, you know, that seemed very familiar. It was fun to see that stuff. Yeah, but and the big joke I've seen in some reviews is that, that they call that the real world because that's not what uh, Venice and Santa Monica really remind anybody of. They are kind of unique. Um, all right, good. So... So we made it through Barbie. Made it through Barbie. So we have a couple of quick things here. One, Sadie has an article about doing things one thing at a time, which she tells me is old news. Well, you found an article. Today's yeah, I, superpower is, doing one, is th- doing one thing at a time. And uh, to what does it say, Sadie? So it's a little bit thin. Yeah. I mean, it's not a long article. But it's by this guy, Oliver Berkman, who wrote 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. I don't know what that book is totally about but um is that really the name of a book four thousand weeks okay i think four thousand weeks is supposed to be the average lifespan of a person they mentioned that in the article okay so maybe it's like managing the time your time throughout your life um but he talks about how uh multitasking is 
detrimental because first of all you should just focus on whatever task is at hand and finish that task at hand and then um, it'll give you a better result in whatever you're doing if you are present in that task but he also says that multitasking for example if you listen to music or listen to a podcast while you're doing the dishes or doing the laundry or whatever it puts it, it mentally changes the task for you to Doing the dishes is so horrible, I have to put music on to make it tolerable. And I don't agree with that because doing the dishes is a mindless task and putting music on. Well, what he, he, yeah, but he's saying that, yeah, just to finish the thought, but this is what you're saying, that the people put music on with the thought that they're not going to uh, enjoy it, enjoy and get much out of doing the dishes. And his point is, if you really concentrate on doing the dishes, you will get something out of it. Oh, that is complete. Nonsense. It's just like a downer. What is there to get out doing the di- get it like what's wrong with putting it's, on? It's a little bit of a zen. Uh, you no, know, it's not get, zen at all. You know? It's not like, zen at all. What's wrong with putting on music while you're listening? Or he said. Literally playing music or playing a podcast while you're driving is yeah. multitasking. Yeah. Or does going he, or working out. Does he have anything to back this up? Is this based on studies or that's just his feeling? He said, he's, well, first of all, he makes the point like, I know this sounds crazy, but don't knock it till you try it. And I'm not very interested in trying it. <laughs> I mean, not that I put on music every time I do the dishes, but it just, it seems like such a stupid, uh, line to draw and then also so i was watching hoda and jenna for a few minutes the other day and jenna made the point which i cannot um co-sign on because i don't have kids but she was saying you know that's a luxury for someone who doesn't have a three-year-old asking you questions every two minutes like if you're a mom you're constantly multitasking because you have to you have things that you need to be doing you're doing the laundry while you're cleaning the kitchen while you're you know like you're doing multiple things at the same time because that's what your schedule requires so hoda and jenna good morning america is that what that is no no what is what is they have their own show oh really um, but it also sounds a little bit like, um, for, from what you were telling me about uh, them, the, the idea is that, uh, you know, uh, multitasking is is too hard. So I'm going to write an article saying that uh, boys can't do multitasking. So we'll say right. that it's uh, basically not worth doing kind right. of thing. So Oprah is famous for talking about multitasking back in the day. She used to talk about it all the time and talk about how women are natural multitaskers and it does not come easily to men. But it, it seems like women are multitaskers out of necessity often. Yeah, or, but I don't think I think I don't think we have to value doing one thing at a time or multitasking. Right. Um, I think, you know, different situations call for a different practice. Right. Uh, uh, so but it just seems Yeah, uh, I was gonna say, you know, at work from my experience with there are people who seem to always be on on the phone while they were writing, while they were doing something no, else. No, I would say that's yeah. that's one situation where I think you'd suffer from multitasking yeah, in some Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I can see there are some things you can do at work simultaneously, but it's frustrating if someone's on a meeting with you and you can tell that they're checking their emails or right. you can tell that they're like IMing someone else or right. something like that. Right. So right. I can right. see that being a problem. No, I don't think you should make a fetish of being able to do 92 things. I mean, that that seems to be, have become a whole 
fad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we're a little bit over that. But for a while, I was like, yeah, I can do this and I can do that. And I can, you know, I'm just too busy and powerful to do one thing at a time. Right. I don't think that works either. But I, I do have to say there were studies, weren't there years ago, studies about uh, if you played music in the background while you were doing your homework you or something? You would absorb more. Well, not only that, but I know they, they, they market certain types of music. Because this particular music is going to help you while you study, while you write, while you do something also, else. Also, I think people enjoy listening to audiobooks or like informative podcasts while they're doing something else. Yeah. And you can imagine like you're absorbing, you know, information about whatever you're listening to while you're riding a bike, while you're, you know, like things that don't require your 100% full concentration. Attention. Yeah. Yeah. No, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And I really, uh, I, I do not hate doing laundry and i totally but i totally reject the idea that i'm not doing as good a job if i'm listening to a books you know audible books or something like that while i do it i mean well i know you for me the whole package is as much is is fine i know when you're doing the laundry you're on an audible book because sometimes i make the mistake of uh calling out you or talking and you know i don't see the buds but well, uh, well, I can hear you. I just don't respond. Oh, good, I think the, good. The other flaw, <laughs> the other flaw in this approach is he. he we, there's the quote here: "We all need to get comfortable with accomplishing less." That's cool if everybody agrees to that, but you got to get a hundred percent buy-in yeah. on that concept before. You just say to your boss, oh, yeah, like, I didn't have enough time in the day, so I only did 50% of what you asked me to do. But you know? I did it really well. Yeah. It's a really good 50%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah. All right, let's move on, Tess. Well, I gave you the article on, uh, or at least I showed you the article on museum charges. Actually, Sadie spotted it first. And we wanted your view. No, but I had seen it too, yeah. You're the museum person, so well, now they're raising just, the price yeah, of museums. Yeah, apparently, well... This article was about the Guggenheim Museum, but apparently a bunch of museums have already raised their price of admission yes. to thirty bucks. That's a lot. That seems like a Imagine lot. Imagine if you're going with a family, I mean, it's one hundred twenty bucks or something like that. Well, it's less well, for kids children. Are, it's oh. less kids for children. Under Twelve or free. But still, okay. I mean, uh, th- this is a huge amount. And I, you know, I used to always, and I mean, this is old old news, but I used to always do the big sell job on going to the Metropolitan Museum because you, mean you, you were, could pay you were, what you will when you were well, teaching. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, you could pay what you want. Right. All right. And then they changed that a few years ago. Right. Uh, so uh, they started charging a real admission. Uh, it's less for seniors, less for children, less for students. Um, and it's I an, think that. I think it's pay what you wish for New York residents. Right. At right. the Met. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., where all the museums are free. Mm-hmm. I mean, not all of them, but uh, and they still you know, are, the Smithsonian. All the so Smithsonian. I had no idea it cost anything to walk into a museum. I was flabbergasted when I first go to New York and start going to the, these museums. And I've always highly recommended that you become a member of a museum because then, uh, you know, the upfront cost is more. Um, it varies, 60 to $90 or whatever, uh, to be a, for a membership for a year. But you can go as many times as you want. You get all kinds right. of perks but at this point i'm feeling like wow this is really going to keep people out yeah and this is going to just really um this article does intimate that uh, the museums are going to be just you know uh full of older white wealthy people wandering around let's just say well yeah 
It could be and, anybody's ethnicity, but and you need money to get it. Uh, well, you know, I used to promise my students, yeah. you know, because museums are even built yeah. to look as if you should stay out. They got yeah. the big stairs. Right. There's a barrier there. You know, it looks like some big mansion. And uh, are we even invited? Yeah. Um, and I used to say, you know, I'm going to give you the, you know, the code, the secret handshake yeah. to go in here, feel comfortable. Have a great time. Right. And I, I think that's going to become a bit harder. I mean, the Met was, the last few years going to the Met before the pandemic, yeah. it was a madhouse loaded with people. It was crazy. But weren't they charging Every that? day. But they were charging All then. day. Yeah. They weren't um, charging 30 bucks. They weren't charging 30 bucks. And, um, and I thought there was a certain just delight in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's great. People are in museums. They're going to museums. It's, uh, but I wonder if some people well, the or- say, oh, no, this is, you know, this is too much. The article says that the, the museums themselves are concerned about attendance will go down. And then, but they're concerned first and foremost, I think, because there'll be less money. I mean, yeah. you, you know, if yeah. you, it's the old, you know, what, what's setting my prices? I, I want to set the optimal price and take the most revenue. This could be counterproductive. But uh, there is some sensibility to the notion you're describing, which is that you also want to have this be a resource for all. Uh, and they're just wringing their hands and say, yeah, too bad we can't do that because we don't have that kind yeah, of money. It's reintroducing a, a level of exclusivity yeah. that we were trying to, you know, uh, I mean, how many times over the last few years have we tried to broaden, uh, make everything more inclusive yeah. uh, and open things up and create greater diversity I can't, you know, this is going to be an issue. Uh, and uh, so I don't, I understand. Especially, I think one thing they mentioned is a lot of these museums receive a large amount of federal funding. Right. So if you're receiving millions of dollars in federal funding, I think they said the Met gets like $26 million in federal funding. Hmm. And then you're catering to this elitist group. How is that fair? Well, I, I think, yeah. So I, I can give you the museum's response. They say, well, we need additional funding. You know, $36 million is not enough. If you give us $46 million or $56 million, yeah, we can do what you want. And one of the things the museums are saying is we need more money because, we, you know, we've had to negotiate with unions now. We're, you know, right. trying to make things better right. for, you know, the uh, guards and other workers in the museum, et cetera. We can't cover our costs. And I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's hard to critically evaluate I, how I think they, it's a misstep. Yeah. I think it's a bad thing. You know, we've got to find... A different solution. But they also say that they're having trouble connecting with the younger audience in general, just from a format perspective. So it just seems like they need to review their business model and their, um, their, whatchamacallit, the, the way that they bring in exhibits and, you know, what they're... Right. But you know what happens when they do that? They start having stupid things like, you know, the history of Barbie exhibits. But well, those are so fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I, it, it, the nonprofit world is kind of funny without getting too deep into it. I mean, they're sort of in business and they're sort of not. So uh, they always feel that they should take a sort of nod in the commercial direction. And then before they get too far down the road, they say, but we really need to raise more money. And so they don't commit to the kind of thing you're talking about, Sadie, which, uh, you know, is good or it's bad. But because there be friction in between – one, relying on revenues uh, on the one hand, and two, on the other hand, having their hand out and relying on contributions, 
that are kind of uh, nowhere. Uh, so, well, yeah, I'm, it's going to be harder for you for each museum is going to have a different uh, hurdle. Yeah, depending on how well, specific not, yeah. their collection is. The, well, the great thing about the Met yeah. is that it's encyclopedic. It has fabulous stuff from all kinds of cultures. Uh, to engage all kinds of people. If you go to the Jewish Museum, yeah. uh, you really going, you know, they have kind of a much narrow more focus. narrow sure. fo- focus that again is going to appeal to a much more narrow but, but demographic. The other thing that's puzzling is if you think anybody doesn't have money troubles of any museum, it's the Met. I mean, the, the, the museums at the top of the food chain usually have very little trouble raising money. And you know they're they're really plugged into enormously wealthy donors. I mean, it just can't, so it's, it's amazing hard to they don't have enough money. Yeah, it? it's crazy. I mean, yeah. if you told me the Jewish Museum is having trouble, yeah, I can believe that. And there are a lot of museums, you know, at that level all throughout the country. You could easily see being hand to mouth. But the Met, you know, can tap into so many uh, unlimited resource donors. It's it's hard to imagine. All so, right, but enough about museums. Okay, so Sadie, I did notice Sadie was on the beach was reading. Uh, the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And I asked her, you know, I never read that. I know it was popular about the 10 or Lies. 15. Lies. The Immortal Lives, I'm sorry, of Henrietta no. Lacks. You didn't ask me. You think that it's a crock. No, I didn't say it's a crock. I said to, ha- what is what is the premise of that? And you, you t- describe the book generally, and you pointed out that one of the things was, and I was aware of this and certainly believe this, that there was enormous contribution to medical research based on these cells that emanated from uh, Henrietta Lacks, who sadly passed away from cancer some years ago. Uh, and you said part of the book is about, you know, the, focusing on the fact that she wasn't compensated, wasn't recognized. And uh, and I was exploring with you, well, well, would you expect that? And then by total coincidence, I see in uh, some internet news site two days ago, they did in fact just reach a settlement to pay the descendants of Henrietta Lacks, Correct. Yes. I mean, the the article that you shared did not have any specifics of the settlement. It mm-hmm. just said that there was a settlement. Who um, is a pain? The, that's a good question. I think it's uh, a few different uh, medical institutions across the country. What happened was when she was receiving treatment for a tumor in her cervix, they took a sample of her cancerous cells and her non-cancerous cells and started um, studying them. And the cancerous cells multiplied at a rapid rate, which they had never seen before in any types of cells that they had sampled from anybody. And so this was at Johns Hopkins. And the group at Johns Hopkins who were studying cells, and this was a relatively new part of medical research, um, once they just realized that these cells multiplied at such a rapid rate and were able to survive in adverse conditions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they started sharing her cells with other uh, medical researchers across the country to the extent that they literally sent away every cell that they, every original cell that they had. And they did not charge any money when they gave it to all of these other groups. And then all of these other groups started selling her cells they started manufacturing her cells in large quantities and selling them for tremendous profits to researchers all over the world and they were responsible for helping develop the polio vaccine helping with aids research helping with cancer research helping just like understand how to 
manipulate cells, how to store cells, how to uh, ship cells, like all that type of like baseline information that helps them do research today. Um, in addition to all different types of specific research that they could do. Um, and what's interesting is her cells were the first of its kind to be distributed in this manner, but there have been since cases in, I believe, the 70s and 80s where people had similar experiences. Their cells were taken while they were receiving treatment for something and they were not made aware that their cells were taken or not asked for consent. And, and they were monetized? And, and they were monetized tremendously. And so this happened uh, a couple times. In the 70s, there was... Um, someone who was going under, who was going, getting treatment for uh, cancer, and he realized at some point that his uh, doctor was like insisting on certain things and just kind of being different than the way he used to. And one day he refused to sign the consent form, and then his doctor started being very um, aggressive toward him and saying, "You know, do you want me to treat you? If you want me to treat you, you need to sign this consent form." Blah 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 blah. And at the end of the day, his um, the market value of his cells ended up being three billion dollars. Three what? Three, three billion dollars. Three billion dollars. Yes. Oh my god! And um, he ended up suing for that profit. And at the time, California, um, he he sued. He didn't uh, get a settlement. He appealed. He won the appeal, and then the doctor appealed, and the doctor won the appeal. Mm-hmm. So it kind of went back and forth, and it sort of set this precedent that once the cells are outside of your body, you're basically leaving them behind as your trash, and oh. if people want to use your trash, mm. they can use your trash. Oh. Meanwhile, there was another gentleman in the 70s who was a hemophiliac, and he had developed, he had to get, um, based on the treatments that he had to get, he had tremendous hepatitis B antibodies and his cells were very valuable in the medical community. And his doctor told him that, and he started selling his own cells. Uh And this was a person who did not have a steady job. His hemophiliac situation did not allow him to have tremendous success. So this was extremely valuable for him to be able to sell his own cells. And he had, um, he developed a business where, he helped other people sell their own blood or, you know, whatever based on, you know, what was going to be helpful or marketable in the medical community. So there are different precedents, different places. But the interesting thing about Henrietta Lacks is that she's a great granddaughter of great, great granddaughter of slaves and um, grew up in a tremendously poor situation. Her children grew up in a tremendously poor situation, her grandchildren as well. And, they nobody told them what was happening. Well, is it because who is the author? Rebecca Sklute. So did she? Is it because of her that these things came to light? Well, it was the type of thing where every they knew the family knew Johns Hopkins took her cells because they said we took your cells. Their family had had the her husband had four years of formal education. Her children had. I think like, you know, up to middle school or mid high school years of education, none of them knew what a cell was. Right. So they didn't know yeah. what the situation was. And they also didn't know 
like any time anyone called them for permission for something, they didn't know what they were asking. And they were in a position where a doctor is saying something, we should say yes to the doctor. Right. right. But, but is it, um, again, is it because of this woman writing this book that helped uh, them get this settlement or be aware of it? Well, yes, it was the type of thing where... Time out. The book was written some time ago. Yeah, right. it was written in, I think, 2010 was this copyright. I don't know if it was put out I before thought it that. was even earlier than it that. It could have been, but um, the every 10 or 15 years, someone did like a magazine article on the situation because for a few years, there was... There were questions about, you know, do we put out her actual name? And for a few years, her name was incorrect in studies. And then they decided to actually use her real name. And then they decided to ask the family for blood and start studying the whole family's, like, blood to see how it uh, related to her cancerous cells. And I guess they're getting information about that. And they literally published all of the family's blood results like analysis in a paper which is really against the rules because it says henrietta lack's husband henrietta lack's child one mm. you know that's a extreme hipaa violation so basically the moral of the story is if what happened then happened today based on all of the new rules about consent and hipaa and yada 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 they would have they couldn't have you know just taken her cells and right. done whatever they wanted to with them but now, you know, you're going back in history and trying to um, decide, does today's law apply to historical yeah, situations? It's also, and then the second yeah. piece is the lawyer that they used for this was the lawyer that was involved in George Floyd. And it's a lawyer who's, you know, typically working on a lot of racism related cases. And they felt it was very race centric, given that um, black people at the time had very little medical access in general and we're not we're often experimented upon we're often not given correct treatment or um given different treatment based on you know what the doctors well, were interested in seeing let me ask you this i mean I, maybe i haven't finished the book i mean is there any thought of that having applied to henrietta lax like she was given inappropriate treatment well they do say that in researching her cells they say that she was misdiagnosed with uh, a different type of tumor. It was still a cervical, uh, a tumor on her cervix, but it was a different type of tumor and it should have been treated differently. I don't know that that would have really made a difference in her full lifespan, mm -hmm. but obviously we were talking about this the other day, the treatments for cancer in the fifties, this happened in the forties uh, and fifties, uh, were a little primitive, were primitive yeah. and barbaric and something you would not. Yeah. So I, it. yeah, you know, I have to say, I think the legal issue isn't so much about, Unless there was mistreatment given the 50s environment, I think the, the issue was really about consent. The question was, it informed consent or not? Right. And and, and and people would have to be awfully sophisticated to understand what they were consenting to under the circumstances. Right. And that's the point that this author makes through the 70s when they're asking for blood from the relatives. Yeah. She asks the doctor who asked for the blood, and she said, "Did you do you really think that they knew what you were asking for? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, we had great conversations about it. And then she asked the family and the family said, we thought we were being tested for cancer and they were going to tell us if we had cancer or not. Right. Meanwhile, there's no test for right. can't You can't just take your blood right. and say, right. like, right. you have cancer. Yeah, that sounds um, Or you're going to get cancer in 20 right. years. So it's pretty clear from the research that the author did that the family had no idea what was going on. And they 
to whatever they ended up consenting to over the years, they had no idea what they were consenting to. All right. Well, that's uh, interesting. And it's just coincidence that the settlement was reached two days ago. I hope they got a lot of money because... Pretty much today. What we can find out, possibly. Sometimes those settlements are secret. Mm-hmm. But, but anyway, I mean, it was it, uh, it was 2010 that the book came out. You're yeah. right, and uh, but Oprah did like a documentary about it on HBO, mm-hmm. apparently. Mm-hmm. So it's been a big story that has popped up over the years, and it's well written. You're enjoying it, yes. I mean, you learn a lot about um, just the family and having been descendants of slaves, just how much progress or lack of progress they made growing up in Southern Virginia working on the tobacco land, like the tobacco farms that they used to, their family used to be slaves in and also being shunned by their descendants of not only slaves, but slave owners and the family line of the slave owners uh, deny that they're related to this um, family, even though it's pretty clear that they are Mm -hmm. very much so related to. So it's interesting on on many different levels. It's a lot about American history. Okay, the, uh, say the title again. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. All right, so we just, uh, you the, let's just do the quick article on salt because we want to get this word out, and then we'll do the last. Salt. 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 Well, I have to say that I had, you gave me two different articles, one about salt and one about uh, the bear. Yeah, we'll do the bear. Well, yeah. I just say the, you know, um, Jeremy Allen White, yeah. the chef, is pictured for both articles. <laughs> He's in I everything. Mean, you can't, He's in every, you can't do anything without, without people talking about the bear. Anyway, a uh, big article about good news for home cooks. Yeah. Uh, um, where the diamond crystal salt will be more readily available. Diamond crystal kosher salt. Kosher salt. Yeah. Okay. Kosher salt flakes is what it says on the label. As opposed now. to what I understand are Morton salt kosher flakes which are more like they're not flakes they're not they're flakes. more like boulders right compared to you know f- for a long time uh, professional chefs uh have preferred mm-hmm. diamond crystal salt in fact uh, when i i use a lot of recipes from uh, the gal who um writes uh, um smitten kitchen and yeah. she always specifies um this amount of salt i use diamond crystal if you use morton's you're going to you you're going to use a lot less or something like right. that. They prefer the flavor, etc. But it uh, just has never been uh, marketed in, you know, it's always been sold in uh, huge uh, boxes or bags. Right. And um, for some reason, they realized, uh, you know, just uh, how big a market this could be, especially, I guess, during the pandem- pandemic. Everything, especially during the pandemic. But um, uh, so... But they say this is really, it's an advantage for the home cook to be able to access, uh, you know, the diamond crystal salt, the diamond crystal kosher salt. Right. So this this is a more delicate flavor, a lighter flavor, less salty, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Uh, So, you know, I think I'll definitely been trying. I haven't been cooking with Morton salt for years. I've been using uh, uh, a couple of other things. One is called real salt. Yeah, I, like the real lot. salt's good. Uh, but uh, yeah, they say here you know, so it's it's at Whole Foods and it's at uh, Trader Joe's. Okay, well, I you know uh, I, I'm hoping it will be more places as well. Okay, all right. So why don't we just uh, we had, there was a story that you had sent to me uh, about a woman who lived well, there was be, an obituary. Yeah, Louise Levy. Yeah, 
who was studied for her very long life, mm. is dead at 112. Yeah. Right? She was one of hundreds of people, all of them Ashkenazi Jews, whose good health and cognitive ability at extreme old age were the subject of genetic research. So this, you know, partly caught my eye because, you you know, somebody lives a long life and you right. have a picture of her dancing. They don't say how old she was when she was dancing, but she, you know, uh, stayed very active. I mean, she was working into her 90s. She stayed active uh, and uh, she ho- she owes her long life to uh, low cholesterol diet, positive attitude, daily glass of red wine. But, you know... Um, what caught my eye is that there is this study. They're studying a group of people, yeah. 700 people mm-hmm. living like over 100. Yeah. And the one thing they have in common is they're Ashkenazi Jews. And the reason Jewish that we're interested in that is because... Because you are 100% Ashkenazi Jew. Right. And also you have some long-lived people in your family. Your, right. Your father lived into his 90s, yes. you know, kind of easily. Uh, and although, he... Uh, although your, your mother is 98. Right. She's, she's 0% Ashkenazi Zero Jew. 0%. Uh, as far as I know. She has a, a lot of different things. But they said they studied these people. Yeah. All right. And uh, it's not like they all just... Uh, you know, they didn't have healthy lifestyles. They don't. They, you know, they're not uh, exercising. Right. Most of them smoked for a good portion of their lives. Right. Um, they, you know, fifty percent were overweight or obese. Mm-hmm. Less than three percent were vegetarians. It's only that genetic link, and so you know, there's a great desire to find out what is the magic yeah. in that gene. We'll see. Can we get some? Um, so, but, uh, hopefully I can tap into that, honey. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. at least, uh, I may not benefit from that, well, but at least in some your ways children, you're, ben- you're benefiting you know. some ways. Yeah. <laughs> but if you, if you give your cells to anyone, oh, there you, you should go. make sure to monetize them. Uh, believe me, yeah. I'm on to that. Watch out, Dan. <laughs> you got the right guy They're for gonna that. They're going to be studying you. That's right. You're not going to, you know, get an Oscar Jew to sign a consent form unless you have a full explanation. All right. So that's great. So uh, that winds up our podcast uh, on Block Island. Uh, and it's great having Sadie on. We learned a lot from Sadie. And uh, time for the beach. Time, time for, for the, the beach. beach. All right. We'll see you. Aloha. Aloha from Tamsin Granger and Dan Appiah. The Tamsin and Dan read the paper. <laughs>